What's up, everybody, and welcome to Central Saturday Irish. I'm Tyler Rojak, and with me, as always, is Luke Smith. And we've got a big show planned for today as we recap Notre Dame's 41-13 to blowout win over number 18, Wisconsin. Luke and I were both at the game and have plenty to discuss about that experience. Plus, we'll break down what we liked and didn't like from this one, and then we'll buy some hypothetical free drinks uh, for the players who impressed us the most. Or maybe didn't impress us, but you'll see later. <laughs> then we'll be joined by one of our favorite recurring guests, Pete Sampson from The Athletic, to talk a little bit more about the game and go in-depth on Brian Kelly becoming the winningest coach in school history. Look, you guys know Luke and I are both big fans of BK and have defended him for years, so it was a pretty gratifying experience on Saturday to see him accomplish that in person, and Pete wrote a great article last week about Kelly, so we're excited to hear his perspective on it as well. Notre Dame's got another big matchup coming up this weekend at home against Cincinnati. But for now, Luke, let's just reminisce on what was an absolutely incredible weekend in Chicago. It might have been the most fun I've ever had. I'm not, I'm not going to stop Same, sort of saying which that. which is absurd. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, just perfect weather. So many people in town. It, it really was just kind of the perfect weekend. I think I had five separate people visiting telling me that they were ready to move to Chicago after this weekend just with everything that happened. Um, as for the game itself, Soldier Field remains the woe. It's so hard to get to. The 11 a.m. kick was terrible. I didn't even tailgate before the game because the lots are so spread out and I kind of got a late start, so I ended up just going in and started drinking in the stadium. That's where I also saw a guy in a split Notre Dame-Wisconsin Barry Alvarez jersey. Thought that was interesting, <laughs> going back to his days as a defensive coordinator for the 88 team. So thought that was interesting. Uh, for the game itself, first three quarters were very dull. Felt like an 11 a.m. kick, and the only excitement I had was screaming at a Wisconsin fan who made a smart-ass comment to me after Dora missed that field goal. And so I kind of just let him have it. And I, I felt great um, after the fact because I kind of just let this guy have it the whole game. But to be honest with you, prior to the Chris Tyree kick return, I did not trust our offense to score again. Uh, then that play happened and the stadium exploded. I think it was the coolest single play I've experienced at a game since Travis Wood, a Cubs relief pitcher, hit a home run against the Giants in game two of the NLDS at Wrigley in 2016. And from that point on, it was all Irish. I was literally cackling in the stands to myself with the pick sixes. Like, they were so unbelievable, and I just could not believe, oh, wow, we're going to score another touchdown again. Uh, like, the, the buddy I was sitting with left after we went up 27-13, and he texts me and goes, oh, yeah, hey, thanks, had a great time, whatever. I'm like, hey, you're not going to believe this, but in the two minutes you've left, we had two more touchdowns <laughs> defensively. So it felt like I was experiencing Nirvana, just watching Wisconsin fans, who I've made my opinions clear on, empty out and taking in the scene. It, it was awesome. Then just loved hitting the tailgate lots after the game and meeting up with everyone there and at various bars afterwards. It was just an awesome Saturday. And frankly, we continued that into yesterday, and we were just screaming <laughs> Notre Dame chants all day at a Wisconsin bar. So I, I think this weekend is going to be hard to top for a while. It really was one of the most fun weekends I've ever had. And you think about all the times we've talked about in the past when we've traveled to these big games and seen Notre Dame just disappoint us on a big stage. This was just the complete opposite of that, despite the fact that, like you mentioned, the first three quarters were pretty tough to watch, honestly. It was just not really good football by any stretch. But then you have that fourth quarter was one of the coolest things I've ever experienced as a sports fan. Um, you mentioned Tyree's touchdown. It actually reminded me of Jeff Samarja's touchdown catch against UCLA back in 2006 because mm-hmm. it was already a good play. And then the entire stadium just exploded when Tyree made up his cut up the field. And then just like Samarja's cutback 
against UCLA, you could just see all the green in front of him, and all of a sudden the entire game basically had just been flipped on its head. So Notre Dame's got that. Then later on, the Austin touchdown extends the lead a little bit, but I'm still not comfortable. I'm still... I guess this is just the way I am as a sports fan, immediately assuming the worst and thinking about all the ways that this can go wrong. And then when Graham Mertz basically imploded and Notre Dame started running up the score with their defense, like I'm with you, I couldn't help but laugh. And I mean, when Drew White picked it off, it took him two hours to Mm -hmm. score and Wisconsin still couldn't get him down. It was just clearly our moment and it was just so special to watch. Right, and I go back to what I said on the preview in that... I'm not sure we really learned anything because uh, Graham Mertz <laughs> is terrible. Like, and I like, I, I actually, I will harp on this because it's in my nature, but it's just been <laughs> remarkable to me, like listening to like other recaps and just reading things and people are, nobody's holding back in their criticisms. Of, of <laughs> like he is just bad and there's no two ways about it. Um, but I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, obviously, I picked Wisconsin to win in the preview and it's yeah. funny that we were bringing huh, weird. on to discuss that. Um, okay. Fair. I mean, obviously I was wrong. Everyone has told me about it. Well, you know, what's funny is that uh, Jeff Melsheimer, who was not happy with me after the Toledo game, when I said we're going to win by 42 and we won by three, he, uh, and then I kind of called him out on that indirectly. Like I was gay. I know he wasn't happy with me. So my last two predictions have been kind of close. And he actually texted me with about like three minutes to go when it was 27 and 13. He goes, Oh my God, was this your exact prediction? I'm like, well, I was 24, 10. And then two minutes later, he goes, all right, I guess neither of us are right because it's now 41 to 13. I, I didn't anticipate that Wisconsin was some great team. I just thought that Notre Dame is these serious flaws and some of them, uh, they still do. And we'll get into those here in a bit, but I guess I just thought that Wisconsin would be able to trip them up, but there's something about this team and the way that Notre Dame is able to win. It was a really weird weekend in college football. I'm going to be honest. I didn't get to watch a ton of games because we were obviously at this one, and then I was like watching them briefly at, at the different bars we were at, but I wasn't able to like intently watch a lot of these games. And then you look at the box score the next day. I mean, just so many weird things happen. I mean, you got Clemson losing in double overtime against NC State. Arkansas, who I guess might be a wagon, beat Texas A&M 20-10. Ohio State had a guy quit in the middle of the game (laughs) and then go on Twitter and tweet, fuck Ohio State. Yeah. Good luck to my teammates, though. Iowa State lost to Baylor. Like, it was just a really weird weekend. And the fact that Notre Dame is undefeated, you look at the team and there's just so many questions you still have. But, hey, we have not lost. No, they have not, and they've only lost two regular season games since 2017, so it's funny that people like you keep picking against them, but, you know, (laughs) go figure. (laughs) All right, well, I mean, we'll have more chances to pick later on in the year, but let's stick with Wisconsin. What did you like the most from that game? I thought Drew White had a really good game uh, outside of the world's slowest developing pick six. Uh, I looked at the box score. He, he he only had three tackles, but it felt like he was just moving much more freely than he had all season. I Just like the way I was taking it in. So that was great to see after last week where I commented that I thought something just kind of seemed off with him. Like I thought he was much more back to his, his old self on Saturday. Definitely. Bo Bauer. Oh, yeah. Also played really well. Uh, that third down when he flew in and then just swatted the ball back, I felt like he was all over the field. Too. It was a really impressive game um, by the linebackers, and they needed that considering Marcus Freeman went to that 4-4. You saw a lot more Jordan Battelle. I guess he hadn't played at all before this game, but he was out there. Was, I thought overall, not just Drew White, the linebackers really showed out again. Absolutely. And, you know, also up front, the defensive line was just incredible again. Like, I don't know who we can't talk about there. 
No Kurt Heinrich playing, no problems. Wisconsin had 74 yards on 28 carries and did not have a run longer than 10 yards. They only had one run that was 10 yards early in the game, or I think maybe in the third quarter, actually. But anyways, our, that defensive line group is so deep from the Ademolola twins to Foskey to, to Patello, who shined in his first significant game action this year. And the guys at the middle, like Jacob Lacey and Howard Cross, playing great. Riley Mills was also terrific, as was MTA. It's just a special group. And, I mean, I think, you know, when Pete, Pete gets into this a little bit later, um, he was worried that maybe the, the, the absence of Heinish would just be a bridge too big to, to cover, but it ended up not mattering. It's just that's because how deep that group is right now, and I'm really fortunate to have that. Yeah, I just want to give a quick shout-out to Jason Adamalola, and this is not just his first big game. He's been playing Lights out all season. On Saturday, he's got four solo tackles, a sack, two tackles for loss, the fumbled force. He's just all over, man. And, like, the whole offensive line, as you mentioned, it's a ton of different guys, but I just wanted to give him um, some praise because he just had another great performance and then MTA again. You're just seeing a bunch of different guys. If you look at the snap count, I'm seeing eight, no, nine different players on the D-line with more than 20 snaps. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. But it's working. And it's going to have to again this week, which we'll get into later. But, you know, I think the other thing I'd like to mention, I think these two things go hand in hand, is Notre Dame's swagger along with Graham Mertz's awfulness. Um, Like the Pine McGregor strut after that touchdown to Kevin Austin, and you see Brian Kelly on the sideline in the background with a fist pump, and he's got like a Kobe Bryant-esque smirk on his face. Like they just have so much swagger. You also have Kelly getting an unsportsmanlike penalty to stick up for his star player Hamilton after two scumbags on Wisconsin tried to cheap shot Hamilton on a punt return because they're sore losers. Uh, and then you have Cam Hart and Hamilton just talking shit to Wisconsin fans in the <laughs> sidelines on the picks. As Drew White and Jack Kaiser running them back, they're just throwing up like downwards W's at the sideline. Like the Notre Dame team, they know that they've only lost two regular season games since 2017. They're better than you, and they're going to let you know about it. Like, that's just awesome. And on the other side of it, uh, Mertz threw four interceptions. Not far off from my prediction of six. And a fumble. Yeah. And a fumble. So, like, if you add collective turnovers, yeah. I was right there. Uh, I mean, he's 18 of 41. It's just remarkable to me how harsh everyone was in their post-game assessment of him, too. Like, But there just really aren't many positives to take away. Uh, and, and that leads me to, I think, maybe – the the best Graham Mertz story of the weekend outside of one of our friends buying one of his branded T-shirts yesterday on Sunday as a joke. Um, But do you want to tell a story about exiting the stadium? Yeah, that'll be my uh, first thing I like for this weekend because I don't think I laughed harder other than maybe when Drew White was taking an hour to score. So as we're walking out, like a lot of Wisconsin fans had already filed out by this point. I was in the Notre Dame section in the 400s, and as we're leaving – we sort of like the entire Notre Dame section comes across without all these Wisconsin fans who are just now leaving. And as you can imagine, Notre Dame fans are very happy. They're cheering. You got like, let's go Irish chance. But then when the Wisconsin fans start to flood in, some rogue Graham Mertz, Graham Mertz chants start breaking out. And everyone's just sort of laughing. And it carries over into the bathroom. And then me and our good friend Willis Pencil, who I sat with the whole game, we get in there and then. One Wisconsin fan just turns around and goes, all right, we get it. He sucks. <laughs> to Mertz. And it was the perfect response because it, like, Notre Dame fans are just 
and they started laughing so hard it actually shut them up and it, then they you know went back to like the let's go Irish chance so it settled down the Mertz criticism for a second but I just I could not stop laughing that was just so funny Oh, perfect response. Perfect response. I will be chanting, all right, we get it. He sucks for years to come. <laughs> it was just so perfect. It was like, all right, we get like Even the Wisconsin fans like, all right, th- we're done. We made a terrible decision, and now we just have to live with it in real time. It's turning out horribly, but uh, there's really no going back now. Like That's just their yeah. quarterback. I don't know if they have much better options no. behind them. And that was really just like the start of just like a great atmosphere of postgame that like we – even though I say, like, I don't know how much we learned out of this game, there's no denying that it was a big moment and, like, a big stage with a lot of people in town and just, like, the fun we had after was awesome. Like, Friday night, uh, I was talking to, like, one of my buddies, and, like, two years ago at Michigan, we had a conversation outside of the bus we were taking back to to Chicago, and he made a comment, I'm sick of having the same conversation in different parking lots every year. And so Friday night, I said to him, we're going to have a different conversation in a different parking lot this time around. And then I found him after the game, and that was the first thing he said to me. He goes, we're finally having a different conversation, and we were actually at a bar, not a parking lot, because we were in a better better spirits. But like just <laughs> finally getting that moment, even though I don't think Wisconsin's very good, there was no denying the magnitude. I mean, you had both national shows there, and like Notre Dame went out and just pulverized Wisconsin, who – as you know, I do not like. So it was an awesome experience. Yeah, we're so used to being on the other end of that, that when it happens and Notre Dame is the one beating the team down at the end, it was like, I don't even know what to do. Is this real? Like, how is this going to go wrong? But everything seemed to work out there. And you just think about where I was mentally. Like, after Wisconsin takes a 13-10 to lead, they've got their third-string quarterback in the game. They had not been able to move the ball at all all game. I was thinking, like, here we go again. But then just this team turned it on. And that's actually another thing I wanted to get to, Drew Pine. Um, I was watching the Notre Dame Icon video they put out today. And my favorite moment from that video was before the offensive drive late in the game. Notre Dame gets a ball. They're up 17-13. And you can hear Drew Pine saying, let's punch this in for Jack while Jack Hone is standing in the huddle. Take a listen. That was an awesome moment. Shout out to Pine for delivering on that two. He hits Austin for a touchdown. It's just another example of this team having a special chemistry that makes them so fun to root for. Like after the game, we're all in incredible spirits. If we want to talk like big picture, is this team capable of winning a national championship? I'm not ready to go there just yet. Just enjoy the moment. Enjoy being 4-0 and how cool that victory was. That really stood out to me um, because it's not always pretty, but this is clearly a group that believes in each other. Um, they're just fun. And another person I wanted to talk about was Kevin Austin, who had a huge bounce-back game. Um, Given how talented Kevin Austin is, I'm sure he's dominated at every single level of football he's ever played in his life. So if you think about it, that Purdue game might have been the worst game of his life. So I give him a ton of credit for bouncing back and putting on a show like he did on Saturday, especially when Notre Dame needed him. Um, Austin finished with six receptions, 72 yards, and two touchdowns. On the first touchdown, it looked like Cone recognized the one-on-one matchup with Austin on the outside. He did. Immediately checked to go deep, and it paid off. And that shows a ton of confidence that Cone has in Austin. And then Austin just made an insane grab. I, I, when they reviewed it, I was like, oh, God, here we go, just because every review this season has gone against Notre Dame. But he was able to hold on. And then on the second one, I have no idea what Wisconsin was doing. They had a linebacker on him in the slot. I was literally yelling in the crowd that Austin was going to run a skinny post for a TD. 
uh, because Wisconsin was literally giving it to him. And I don't even really think that's impressive by me. I just think when the drunk guys in the 400 section can see that, that probably doesn't bode well for the Wisconsin defensive coordinator. But uh, I'll take it, man. That was a big-time play. And shout-out to Drew Pine as well for just not being afraid of the moment at all. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I actually called the first touchdown too. I said, oh, I see the single coverage here. They're going to go to Austin on a fade route. That's the second time I've done that with him this year. I did it at Florida State too. So I feel like, you know, maybe we have the leg up on Jim Leonard. I don't know. But um, but yeah, no, that was a great moment. Um, speaking about the icon video, also in that, you see the start of it. Myron Tagovailoa Mosa is saying something very similar. Like, we're going to win this game for Jack Cohn right here. So clearly there was a bigger element to that than Cone let on and and you know maybe that would you know I'm sure that's probably why it was so emotional for him when he did get hurt later in that game but the other thing I want to talk about in the icon videos this year in particular I've noticed it a lot more than in past years you can hear it like well they they get bleeped out but there are clearly more <laughs> f-bombs in them than in yeah. past years and I'm shocked I haven't seen like a thread of like old people complaining about that yet but like in that video Pine says it MTA says it. Kyron says it. Like they're all Hamilton said they're all dropping f bombs, and they're including all these <laughs> clips. I'm shocked we haven't heard like you know or seen like a letter to the editor in the Observer yet about these damn videos. But I kind of like oh, that. Give it I think time. That, that goes along. <laughs> maybe I'll write one under a pseudonym. Um, but anyways, <laughs> uh, I got time. But like I think that goes along with what I was saying earlier about the swagger this team has. Like it's just kind of a. It goes along with the last couple of years, like. These Notre Dame teams are not the Notre Dame teams of the early 2000s that were afraid to do anything. So I like that. It's refreshing. Yeah, and credit to the school for like leaning into that a little bit and showing the true— I'm- Lean in to be the villain. Yeah. Obviously, the players are swearing on the sideline. Anyone who's ever been in any competition knows just how things can get and how intense people can get. So like, obviously, you know they're swearing, and at least this time they're like, you know what? We're not trying to hide from it. This is how intense it is. This is how emotional they are, and we're just going to roll with it. But— um. You know, it wasn't all positive in this one. So what didn't you like on Saturday? Right. So the Jonathan Dorr revenge tour. Yeah, let's it, cancel. The, the revenge tour is over. It's done. It was short-lived. It's the Jonathan Dorr experience now. Although in some ways, I think it's still going exactly how we expected it to. I know you had an exchange with Greg about this on Twitter, but like, when he misses kicks, he misses them so badly. And his miss on Saturday. He leaves no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> leave no doubt. His miss on Saturday was so predictable. Notre Dame scuttled in the red zone with two runs at lost yards. Cone gets hit by a turf monster on third down. And then Doher just shanks the hell out of a 39-yarder. But then later, he drills a 52-yarder perfectly. So it just makes no sense. But that's just the experience. That's the way things are going to be. Um, I hate it. It drives me nuts. But... I guess it hasn't burned us yet, um, but it, yeah, it's driving me nuts. I know I would feel way more confident when Doors game on the line, fifty yards, wind in his face. It's like, oh yeah, this is money. But if it's like a thirty-five perfect day, no way. He's wind, probably like, shaking oh, it. Yeah, this isn't good. <laughs> yeah. Um, listen, another thing. I don't want to harp on this. I've already done it enough this year, but. The offensive line is just not getting any better. We won by 30 in a game that we had three rushing yards in, and I was almost rooting for a negative result from a rushing yard perspective. I was. Like, like a lot has been made, I know, about other programs having the same issue with their own line this year, and, and Clemson, Bama are good examples of that. Um, the difference is obviously, you know, and not all of this is on the offensive line, so if it's on Jack Cohn, 
Some of it, I don't know what the deal is, but I'm just sick of it. Like, just play fucking better. Like, I, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. This isn't sustainable the way we're doing this right now, and that kind of goes into what I want to say now. Like, it was kind of just a gross performance offensively. We it just looks sluggish. We I don't know if that's a word, but I'm saying it. We did <laughs> score 20 points, which is all we thought we were gonna get. But like, there were so many far, there were so many three and outs in that game, and it was just ugly. It's feast or famine, like, can we chuck a ball downfield and come up with a catch? If not, we're pretty much screwed. And, like, that's just – I don't think it's sustainable. It worries me going into this week. Now, by the time we release our episode, I'm sure I'll talk myself into us beating Cincinnati by 21. But, like, on paper, it worries me this week, and, and I'm going to have to do a little bit more on figuring that out. But – well, in figuring out how I talk myself into, you know, a big victory. But it just doesn't seem very sustainable. It doesn't. And especially if this team wants to win a national championship, this level of play, particularly on the offensive line, is not sustainable. And Notre Dame is going to have to generate some way to be able to run the ball effectively. At some point during the season, we get into this with Pete, but as it stands, Notre Dame doesn't have the tools to run an air raid offense. I think they threw the ball nine times on first down, and Cohn only completed two of those passes. Then... Now Notre Dame's in seconds head, and then, you know, if that doesn't go well, I think the average third down distance to go for Notre Dame was eight and a half against a Wisconsin defense like this. That's just not going to work. I mean, yeah, maybe it, it beats this terrible USC team who just got blown out by Oregon State. Like, yeah, okay, we can beat bad teams doing that. But if this team has any aspirations of going to the playoff or doing anything in the playoff, this just, it has to improve at some point. Right. And uh, yeah, it's just hard to see that right now. It really is. But I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, we've talked a lot about the offensive line, so we won't harp on them anymore. But uh, what I didn't like is uh, Soldier Field is terrible. It Um, sucks. I've never been there. I'm obviously not from Chicago. This is my first experience. It honestly feels like Soldier Field is trying to be the least fan friendly stadium ever. And if Mm -hmm. they are, they're doing a pretty good job of it because, look, it's in a cool area of the city. So I'll give it that much. But it's a pain to get to. Like you mentioned, the parking lots are so spread out. And then trying to get inside the stadium was a debacle. The beer lines were massive. You would think that they would have figured it out, considering it's a really old stadium. But that's just, it's clearly not the case. So, yeah, you kind of talked a little bit about this in the preview. And now I can definitively say Soldier Field and that entire experience beginning to end there in the stadium is, is not good. No, it sucks. They need to move to Arlington Heights. It's a dump. I think I've been there probably five or six times total, and which is not a lot for having lived here my whole life. But every time I go there, I'm like, you know, I think I could go a couple more years. So if I never, if I never come back here, I think I'd be okay. Um, it's just, it's just, it's a bitch. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't fun. Another thing that's already starting to bother me is Notre Dame fans completely turning on Jack Cohn. I'm not saying the entire fan base as a whole is, but. Um, look, I understand Jack Cohn isn't perfect. Sometimes he holds the ball a little bit too long. He doesn't move that well in the pocket. And uh, he missed a couple of throws on Saturday. But I have no idea why fans are just completely giving up on the guy, considering he played lights out against Florida State, led us on a game-winning drive against Toledo, played solid against Purdue, and then gets hurt going up against his former team. I know we've seen flashes from Buckner and Pine, but given how apparent it was to the entire team, that Cone was the best player in that room from the pretty much the moment he stepped on campus. I don't understand what they're seeing from Pine and Buckner that they, they're so convinced that they're going to be like significantly better, and I get it. I understand why Cone and this offensive line don't necessarily mesh because if he's constantly getting pressured, like I, I get that. Like, Don't get me wrong, but 
I mean, Pine had a sack fumble. And he got destroyed on that. We just kind of forget that because he played well, and, and that's great that he did. I'm just saying, I don't know how it's just so definitive. These two guys are better, or they're better for the system. I'm certainly not ready to go there, and I just think people are quickly forgetting that Jack Cohn is still a really talented quarterback. Well, I'll tell you why they're ready to go there. It's because... The first completion Drew Pine had, he rolled out to the right and hit Avery Davis for 15 yards, and they haven't seen anything yeah. close to that from a mobility <laughs> standpoint all year. However, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is here, and like we don't see what's going on in practice. Like I think what I mentioned earlier about sustainability, like some of that is just like I'm worried about Jack Cohn's health. Like first yeah. off, for Brian Kelly's tone after this game. like sounded like, oh, he's totally fine. But Brian Kelly does this a lot. And then it turns out like, oh, actually the guy's really hurt and he didn't practice all week. So like, I, I don't know what the deal is with Cone, but even long-term say, this is just like a, you know, a rolled ankle or whatever. I don't know if he can like survive with this offensive line (laughs) and, and just his lack of mobility. Um, And so I get it. However, like I do want to say, I've given Drew Pine a lot of shit on this podcast, all in like good fun, calling him the Deloitte yeah. consultant, like the Deloitte product <laughs> owner. Um, but he came in on Saturday and did a hell of a job, like and and really showed a lot of poise. Obviously, they went down and scored and kind of gave them a jolt. I don't know if that's just you know catching you know something in a bottle and, and running with it in the moment, but um, I'm still not you know sold on him just because we have such a small sample size there, and I do think he stares down receivers a little bit. I was going to say, on that third down, when he hit Kevin Austin for a third and long conversion, he threw the ball pretty low, and Austin made a good catch. Mayer was wide open in the middle, mm-hmm. and everyone around saw. Mm-hmm. Like, he stared down Austin all the way. Again, got the first down, ended up scoring a touchdown on that drive. But when your best player is that wide open in the middle of the field, like, that has to mean something as well. Yeah, I mean, that happened a couple times uh, on Saturday. It's just inexcusable. But, but yeah, I don't know what the answer is there. Um, <clears throat> fans have had just varying reactions, levels of reactions regarding Jack Cohn every game this year, and so that's just going to keep happening. Do I think that there's, you know, probably a conversation and maybe for further expiration that needs to happen here? Yeah, but I'm not the one to make that call, and I, I'm just going to go with whatever the coaches think. Like, do I, I have no idea. But um, yeah. this team is just going to be a lot of question marks there. And I don't think it's necessarily a talent issue. It's just like the way the offense is currently composed. But yeah, it's definitely kind of just, I don't know, sort of thing going forward. Yeah, it'll certainly be something to follow the rest of the week. Jack Cohn's health and Tyler Buckner's health as well, because this hamstring injury to Buckner might be a little bit more severe than what was previously led on. The last thing I wanted to touch on was, um, Chris Irie, he had the biggest play of the game, undoubtedly, but he actually didn't play that much in this one. Um, according to Patrick Engel of blueandgold.com, Tyree only played 14 snaps on Saturday. And I understand the struggles in our O-line. We didn't really have any plans to run the ball. And Kyron Williams is an incredible player and a better pass blocker than Tyree. But you would think a guy as talented and dynamic as Tyree would be able to contribute more than what we've asked him to do, at least in that one. I'd love to see him get some jet sweeps, be more involved as a receiver because He's clearly the fastest guy in the team. He's incredibly capable at catching the ball. Uh, we'll just have to see if this changes going forward. But he's just a fun player to root for, and I think he's just so talented. I'd just like to see him get more touches. But again, when you're basically playing left-handed without any sort of rushing attack, it's a little bit harder to get a 5-9 running back the ball. But I don't know. It's just something to follow going forward. We'll see if he's going to get more involved in like stretch plays or jet sweeps because at least in those plays, like 
the line doesn't really have to block that well. Like he can still get out in space. Um, but that was just something I wanted to touch on. Yeah. I mean, I think that goes for Kyron as well. Like that, that was probably one of his quietest games, um, that he's had through no fault of his own. He did still backslap Sanborn on one play, which was great. Yeah. But he had a great Ty- blocking game. Tyree had one catch. And Kyron had no targets, and I, I don't know if he. Well, I don't. I know. I don't know if he had a target. I don't think he did, but not none that I can recall. And here's the issue: is with the deficiencies of the offensive line, we had to keep those guys in on passing plays more as blockers, and it's it's taking away opportunities for them to really kind of get the ball, which we just can't have when they're two of your better players. So I feel bad for both of those guys, honestly, because like you had people yeah. coming into the year saying they might be the best running back tandem in the country. And now all you know they're known for is just the guys that are literally dead last in the FBS in terms of uh, – well, actually, sorry. They're first in terms of yards after contact because they get hit every play. Like, it's insane. So, I don't know. It just doesn't – it doesn't feel like a good usage of their talent. I don't have the answer there given how things have looked, but it just, like, it doesn't feel right. Right, but this is a good segue to our Who's Drinking Free – because I would buy free drinks for Chris Tyree because it's been so long since Notre Dame has had a game-changing play on special teams like that. And honestly, could not have come at a better time for Notre Dame. Like we said, they had their third-string QB. Offense wasn't moving the ball. And then Tyree just changed the entire game with pure speed. He also gave us the Gus Johnson call that was just incredible. It was even better than I could have hoped for in the game. And I was shocked Wisconsin even gave him a chance on that play to begin with because we mostly just fair catch kicks. But Tyree sure made him pay. As soon as he broke left, you could kind of see the whole forming. And then once he made that cut, Wisconsin's kicker went flying and he was gone. Um, I just checked, though, and it looks like Tyree was born in 2001. So not only am I not able to legally buy him a drink, but now I feel incredibly <laughs> old and washed up. Yeah, that is that is pretty young. Wow, that kind of scares me. That means we're going to have <laughs> – wow, we have guys on the roster that were born in 2002. Wow. Yeah, it's better to not think about that. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. All right, what about you? Who are you buying drinks for? Graham Mertz. Graham Mertz. Graham. All right. We get it. He sucks. Yeah, I mean, as Pete and Matt Fortuna reported on their podcast, after the Notre Dame locker room played jump around after the Notre Dame victory march, somebody in the locker room yelled that the real game ball should go to Graham Mertz, which, again, goes into the idea that Notre Dame just has this swagger and loves talking shit to their opponents. But I agree. I mean... Listen, Notre Dame scored enough points without him, um, but he did gift us two touchdowns as well and, you know, 34 points off turnovers or whatever it was. So the least I can do is is buy him a beer. Uh, he won me an awful lot of money on Saturday, so thanks, Graham Mertz. And, um, yeah, wow, you're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone at Rinaldi's after the game would have been buying him beers if he had showed up. But. All right, now to talk a little bit more about this one, let's bring on uh, Pete Sampson. All right, we're excited to have Pete Sampson from The Athletic back on the show. This is great timing because Pete wrote an excellent piece last week about why Brian Kelly has been able to win so much in the lead-up to him becoming the winningest coach in Notre Dame history. So I encourage everyone listening to go check that out. If you haven't already, it's really well done. We'll talk about it here in a bit. But before we get to that, I should mention that Pete and I both went on record predicting Wisconsin to win by a score of 17-13 to before the game. And as seemingly every Notre Dame fan who listens to this podcast has pointed out to me over the past couple of days, that's not how the game played out. So, Pete, what were your biggest takeaways from Notre Dame's win on Saturday? Uh, you know, I, I thought that it, you know, the biggest picture takeaway was probably like that was the game that I felt like 
this Notre Dame team sort of like found some sort of link to the last three years where they just like figured out a way to win without sort of like losing the plot or sort of losing their nerve and when things were tight. Um, and I'm not, not sure I was totally confident that like this year was going to have anything to do with the last three years. So I think to sort of see something that looked kind of like DNA um, that carried over from one season to the next, I thought was important. Um, you know, I, I thought uh, Marcus Freeman continues to be like, that's the Marcus Freeman Notre Dame hired in January. And we all like, they sort of viewed it as like a home run type of pickup as a coordinator. Um, so that was big. And then, you know, what do they do at quarterback moving forward? It certainly seems like, um, you know, Brian Kelly is all on board with Jack Cohn, but uh, you know, you, you come away from that game thinking like, well, you know, do they have, they have three guys maybe that can help them at quarterback. So th those are like, those are the three things like one, big, big picture, but then two, like a little bit more uh, in detail with this current team. Now, one of the aspects that doesn't really have that element of DNA from past seasons is the performance of, of the offensive line to date. And obviously there's been a lot of criticism directed towards that direction. I think right now they're on pace to give up more sacks than any year in school history. And they haven't been able to run the ball effectively at all, despite having two really good weapons in the backfield. But obviously some of those sacks fall on the quarterback for not getting the line in the right protection pre-snap, and in some cases holding the ball too long and not being mobile enough in the pocket to avoid pressure. Notre Dame did a lot of different things on the line last week. We saw them rotate in guys like Joe Ald and Andrew Kristofik. Uh, they played more in that game against Wisconsin than they had any other game this season. But I'm just curious – do you think as it relates to these issues, there's anything Notre Dame can fix on the fly over the course of the final two months of the regular season, or, or is this just kind of what they're going to be? I think this is what they're going to be. You know, maybe there'll be a slightly better version of this, but I think if you're, if you're in a position where you're holding out hope that like Notre Dame is suddenly going to look like a Joe Moore award line, like that's not happening. Um, you know, maybe it will happen against Navy, but it's, this line is, I have a hard time describing like what's happening uh, with this group. Cause I don't, I don't understand line. I don't feel like I understand line play at a level to be like, okay, well, this is like a false step. And like his hand placement is poor. But when you see guys running unblocked, you see guys under run, running unblocked. There's only so much you can do about that. And I, you know, I asked Brian Kelly about this today because certainly the line is getting a lot of heat as it should. Um, but Kelly was pretty quick to like say, not blame Jack Cohn, but certainly point out like he has to get the ball out faster. Like he is not seeing things as he should. And like I followed up immediately. I was like, well, why not? I mean, the guy started 18 games at Wisconsin. This is his fourth game here. Like, should like the guy's been around forever. Like, shouldn't he be able to see stuff happening? And Kelly like stepped away from his lectern and like crouched like in front of me as if he was taking a snap under center. He's like, he's been like this for four years and he just has not kind of unwired himself or rewired himself to like be a shotgun, get the ball, look, throw it quarterback. Um, you know, is that, is that the main reason? I, I don't know. Cause again, I go back to the fact that he started 18 games at Wisconsin four here. You would think like being in a shotgun in some ways would be easier then taking snaps under center and dropping back and then surveying the field. So uh, it's difficult to get my head around that. Um, you know, would they be better off if, 
you know, Drew Pine with his mobility, you know, Tyler Buckner, I think is, has a ways to go in terms of just understanding what he's doing. But um, right now I, I just, it's not a good match between Cone and this offensive line. And like, whether the line has to pick it up to make up for Cone or Cone has to do more to pick up for the line. Like, I'm not, I'm not really sure what it, the, like the exact answer is on that. Yeah, and I think the one thing that surprised me a lot about that is Cone is described as such a hard worker, someone who lives in the film room. He's got high football IQ. So you would think that like recognizing blitzes, getting the offense in the right protection before the play happened would be a strength of his. But so far, it hasn't been the case. But one thing that Notre Dame's offense does have is some really good athletes at the skill positions. And Michael Mayer is incredible. Kyron Williams has been great when he's been given opportunities to be great. And now Kevin Austin, despite, you know, a really bad game against Purdue, They've all played like NFL caliber players, and that's kind of what we expected to see from them going into the season. So what would you like to see Notre Dame do more of on offense to get the ball in the hands of these guys, despite the shaky play on the offensive line? I would like to see more sort of not necessarily screen passes, because I think teams have kind of figured out how Reese likes to call them and when he likes to call them, but I think more just running backs as receivers, whether that be sort of like an in-cutting route from the slot or even just out of the backfield, wheel route type stuff. Um, that's that's where I would like to see Notre Dame go more. I don't want to see them run anymore. Like, I'm, I've seen enough. Like, I don't, I don't need to see, like, Notre Dame in second and nine because they were committed to the run to get one yard on first and ten. Like, um, it, so I, they need to be more creative in the pass game, which, like, for Tommy Reese – to game plan without the benefit of an offensive line that you can really trust and count on. Like that's a, it's just a hard sort of set of circumstances to deal with. So it's um, more, more Williams and Tyree in the past game. I'd say that that's what I'd like to see more of. I think they're, they're getting <laughs> as much out of, maybe not as much out of mayor and Austin as they would love overall, but like close to it. Right. Like, uh, you know, I think Avery Davis gives them something. So it's, you know, it's more more throws to the running back. I feel like that's kind of the maybe the, the thing that can be a little bit more featured in the, the offense moving forward. We mentioned at the top the, the article you wrote last week on why Brian Kelly wins. And I think a clear takeaway from that piece was that uh, a key component of his success is his ability to evolve or adapt. And one of my favorite quotes in that article came from former offensive coordinator Chuck Martin, where he referred to Brian Kelly when he got to Notre Dame as Jesus Christ, offensive innovator, <laughs> before saying that no one innovates forever. And he was specifically talking about that 2012 team as being big and physical, having to punch USC and Oklahoma in the face and not being, in his words, uh, chuck and duck, namby-pamby. So I want to connect that to the current day because while Notre Dame had a very similar offensive identity last year to what Martin mentioned in that quote, it's obviously quite the opposite this year. So I think just specific to this game on Saturday, what did you make of Notre Dame essentially punting on one half of its offensive playbook and just essentially choosing not even to, to try to run, to, to try to establish the run against Wisconsin, and yet they still found a way to, to score enough through a couple of shot plays? I thought it was a great approach. Like I thought it was the smart thing to do. Like I, Notre Dame didn't execute it overly well. Like the shot plays to Lindsay, they need to keep taking them, but like that, that's not happening right now. Um, you know, right. they need to keep taking them because it stretches the field. It makes you respect Notre Dame's willingness to take them. Um, but th- that was not as efficient as it needed to be. There were times where mayor was open and Cone didn't see him. Um, but the idea that they needed to be a pass first team, I thought was spot on. Like 
you're telling me like a Notre Dame offensive line who struggles to run block is going to suddenly get it together against the number one rush defense in the country. Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, so I like that approach from Reese. I'm not sure it was executed as well as he wanted. I also think Cone, uh, from what I can gather, like that was a big moment for him. And I think that the stress showed to him. Um, you know, I, I don't think we, in my profession, like I don't think we just sort of talk enough about like, guys just not playing well or like the moment sort of getting to them where, you know, their preparation sort of goes out the window. I think that happened to Cone a little bit against Wisconsin, like kind of understandably so, right? Like, um, so it, uh, I, I like the approach from Reese, you know, the, the first down you pass first team. I thought that was, that was smart in that moment. Um, I don't I think it's smart every week, but it was, I think that was the way to go last week. You mentioned Jack Cohn, and obviously the main storyline going into this game was about him going up against his former team, and he obviously hurt his ankle on the sack that forced him to leave the game, and he appeared to be in a lot of pain on the sideline. No, yep. Kelly has already gone on record twice now saying that Cohn should be healthy enough this weekend to go, and if he is, he's going to be the starter. But as you've mentioned before, Kelly is notoriously optimistic um, when it comes to injuries, and it's hard to get a sense of what's reality. So. What sense do you have, not just on Cone's availability, but Tyler Buckner's as well? Because he apparently didn't even get any practice reps last week. Yeah, Cone's ability, I thought Kelly's tone on that in his Monday presser was a lot different than Saturday. Like, Saturday was like, oh, Cone's fine. Like, don't even worry about it. Like, that's, why is this even a question? Um, today was much more, uh, you know, we'll see on Tuesday if he can practice great. He'll play. Um, if you can't, then we're going to have to go in a different direction, start pine, uh, and rotate with Buckner. I, I take him at his word that Buckner is available this week to practice. Um, but cone, I don't know. I mean, cones sort of make or break is going to be tomorrow. If he can practice tomorrow, then I think they'll roll with them. But the, the way Brian Kelly described it today and that presser was not not as sure a thing as it was made out to be on Saturday immediately post game. Yeah, that is interesting. Now on the other side of the ball, I want to talk about somebody, uh, JD Bertrand leading the team in tackles again this week. He's led them every week so far this season. And a month ago, I think he was third on the depth chart, uh, which is kind of remarkable. He's truly a guy at this point, that Notre Dame can't afford to take off the field. What about his play has impressed you the most this season? Uh, I think what, his ability to diagnose plays, um, to, to get where he needs to be quickly without taking false steps. I mean, he is not like, he's a good athlete. He's at Notre Dame, right? Like he leads the team in tackles. Like you, you're not going to do that. Uh, like even God bless Joe Schmidt. Like he was a good athlete. Um, <laughs> but J- and JD Bertrand is a hell of a lot more athletic than Joe Schmidt, but we're not talking about Jalen Smith or Jeremiah Wusu Kormoa here. Um, but where Bertrand really sort of, thrives I think is his willingness to watch film and get into his playbook and like burn that part of the preparation hard I know going back to his high school days he was not an early enrollee um you know was coming to a team that had a lot of linebackers I wasn't even sure they're going to take him until the very end so they take him he signs he's doing his final semester blessed trinity in Atlanta spring break what do you want to do spring break senior year well, initially he wanted to come up to Notre Dame and just watch spring practice and study the playbook. Like definitely like football nerd qualities with this kid. Uh, and, but I mean, that pays off because he knows where to be and how to get there. Uh, you know, he's going to make every single tackle. No, but like 
when he reads a play and hits it, like he knows what's happening before it does. And that's, that I think is his greatest strength. I think by far is his ability to just sort of work hard and grind at preparation. Keeping it on that side of the ball, Notre Dame's defensive line has been one of the biggest strengths in the roster. And this group might not have the same star power that we've seen in recent years. You know, there's no Stefan to it necessarily, but that doesn't seem to matter. And they rotate a ton of guys along the D line. You saw that a lot this week. And we've seen the group as a whole perform at a really high level week in and week out. Why do you think this group has been able to have so much success so far this year? Uh, you know, I think the depth is a big part of it. And you know, I think that probably going back to 2017, when Notre Dame was playing Myron Tongavailoa most and Kurt Heinisch, like in the second quarter against Georgia, um, there has been a real commitment to like, we're going to play a lot of guys because we have to play a lot of guys, like just rolling with what they tried to do for the first, what, seven years of Brian Kelly, where a defensive lineman playing 80 snaps was not, not really a foreign concept. Now 50 is a lot. So I think there's, you know, sort of a strength of the pack there. Um, I think Mike Elston is a developer of talent is as good as anybody on Notre Dame staff. Um, you know, I, I don't know if he's necessarily underrated because I, I think most of the fan base gets it, um, but he is accurately rated as excellent. Um, so that's a big part of it. And like they've recruited well, they've had some hits. Like when you go back to some of the guys they took, you know, 14, 15, Micah Drew Treadway, Elijah Taylor, um, Brandon T. Awesome, um, you know, Andrew Trebetti before that, like just guys with not a huge amount of upside. Um, and they're, they really have hit at a high level with Foskey, Okwara, Hayes, Ogadeje. I mean, like, think about that class with Ogadeje, Dalen Hayes, Julian Okwara, Khalid Kareem, Jameer Jones. They're all in 53-man rosters. Like, it's hard to sign five defensive ends in one class, but they, Notre Dame signed five and then turned all five in NFL guys. Um, so that's – I think that's a huge part of it. Um I thought that losing Kurt Heinisch last Saturday would be like kind of the bridge too far for Notre Dame to stop uh, Wisconsin's run game. And it wasn't at all. Like Howard Cross came in, played great. Jacob Lacey, huge fourth down stop. Uh, Riley Mills played probably his best game of the year. So um, I think most of the credit goes to Mike Elston for this, for recruiting and development. Shifting the conversation more big picture, the national perception of Notre Dame, and more specifically Brian Kelly, is really interesting, I think. Joel Klatt said on the broadcast during the game on Saturday that Kelly might be the most underrated coach in college football, and you also have guys like Colin Coward saying Notre Dame never gets the respect they deserve anymore. Why do you think there is still a hesitancy for some people in the the national media and those who follow the sport outside of Notre Dame to include Brian Kelly among the very best coaches in college football. I know some of your colleagues have had them had have had him high up on their list, Stuart Mandel mm-hmm. and Bruce Feldman, but it does seem like there might be a little bit of a hesitancy to, to kind of give him the respect that he's he's earned the last five years. You know, I, I think it's hard to live down some of the earlier impressions. Um, you know, they went eight and five, eight and five. You know, you had a huge twelve and zero season that turns into the basically to remember for the Alabama game and Manti Teo, right? Like that's, I think that's like on a national level. That's what people remember about that season. Uh, the stink of four and eight is hard to get off. Um, you know, but I think it's probably in a quiet moment, Brian, Brian Kelly would probably tell you that's the best. That season was maybe the most impactful of his career uh, because it, it forced him to really get outside his comfort zone. So I, I think now it's just like an accumulation of wins. I mean, Notre Dame is on, 
they will have five straight 10 win seasons by the time this season is done. And that, that gets people's attention. I think the hesitancy is just, there's only one Clemson in November of last year type type of win on the resume. Um, You know, maybe going back to Oklahoma in 12. So that, that hurts him. Um, And I understand that, like, you know, you, you get to Alabama and like, I felt like the Alabama game as it was happening was a, a butt whooping. Uh, and then you watch Alabama do that to Ohio state and like, well, maybe I reconsider that a little bit or Clemson in 18. It was a butt whooping when it happened. Um, and then they go and do that to was Alabama in the national title game. Yeah. Right. Like you reconsider it a little bit. So, um, you know, but in the moment, you don't you don't think about a game that hasn't been played. So I, I just think sort of the lack of that marquee win, um, you know, the lack of a, a playoff success. Uh, people harp on that. I get that, but it's kind of hard to argue with 106 wins. Um, you know, it there it's a program that has been just massively inconsistent all over the map for about 20 years, and now uh, in the last four plus, you're you're seeing a coach that has really sort of come into his own. So I think people are sort of slowly figuring that out. Yeah. And to follow up on that, what do you think is the biggest or most widely held misconception Notre Dame fans have or, or have had about Brian Kelly during his time here? Ooh, um, I think that there's a perception that he can't be a, there's no way he could be a player, a quote unquote players coach because he screams at guys on the sideline. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's even happened this year. Like Ramon Henderson forgot to go into the game against Purdue and Kelly, I think got on him twice in two separate instances on the sideline. Uh, and it's, you know, it's hard, it's hard to watch. Like what he did to Sam Mustafer in the NC state game in the hurricane, when he's called the snapping atrocious, like that sticks. Uh, people remember that stuff, but when you've listened to Kyle Hamilton talk about, Kelly coming out of the field and getting a 15 yard penalty in the Wisconsin game. Cause it's cheap shot. He took from Wisconsin. Like that stuff really matters to players. Um, they noticed that that's, that's like locker room credibility. So I, you know, has Kelly always been this great players coach? No. Um, but I do think in the last four plus seasons that has changed. Um, I think he's related to the players better, but it kind of goes back to what I said earlier. It's like, him turning beat red against South Florida in 2011. Like you don't live that stuff down. Um, and you know, Kelly will even still reference it from time to time. Um, but it's like, once you make that first impression, that's, that's what sticks. And I, I, I don't think a lot of Notre Dame fan base ever kind of let that go. Yeah, that makes sense. And you see it with other coaches. I think like this past weekend, Mario Cristobal lost his mind on a player. Yeah. I guess I wonder why, Images like that don't stick quite the same, but you know that just could be the national attention that Brian Kelly gets as the head coach of Notre Dame. But something I was curious about in putting your piece together, you spoke with 10 current or former Irish assistants. What does the process look like for you in having all those conversations? Because obviously this is a milestone win. It's been on the horizon for a while. But like, how long does it take for you to have all these conversations and put your thoughts together, especially when you're talking to guys like Chip Long and Mike Dembrock, who didn't necessarily leave the program on the best of terms. Right. It, um, so it's kind of one of those stories. You'd be an idiot to think Brian Kelly's only going to win three games this year and like not tie new Rocky. Right. Um, yeah. or not break the record. 
so you like, you know, this story is coming. Um, and so then I'm thinking about like, well, what would be an interesting way to tell it? And Brian Kelly has always uh, been kind of a fascinating character to me. Cause like, I feel like, you know, look, I've covered what is it, 145 games. I've covered 144 of them. Um, I should be able to explain like why he wins. And I'm just like, I don't really have like a good explanation for this. And like, that's, Part of me is just like, it's kind of like a professional shortcoming here that like, I should be able to explain this. I cover freaking Notre Dame every day and I can't tell you why Brian Kelly is so good at his job. Um, so that kind of got like the wheels turning about the, the themes of the story. Uh, and then, you know, having covered all of them, like I keep in touch, not with every coach who's come through here, but a lot of them, um, you know, the coaches that were harder to get, like I tried to get Matt LaFleur with the Packers, didn't get that. Tried to get Harry Heastan, didn't get that. Um, and then really, it was, I spent a lot of time in July making the calls because like you're not going to get Mike Elko to call you back right. the week of Texas A&M Arkansas. Um, so I did a lot of it very early. Um, so there was very little reporting that I did probably after August 15th, I would say. Um, and then you're just sort of like figuring out how you want to put the story together. How do you tell this? Um, you know, what anecdotes do you use? Because, I mean, there's, as you might imagine, like, there was a bunch of good stuff that I just couldn't work in because I couldn't make it fit. Um, but, you know, it's like you knew Chuck Martin was going to be a great quote because, you know, Chuck Martin's always a great quote. Um, you know, but I, I was happy to – and I, was, I wanted to get, like, Elko, Alford, Denbrock, guys that aren't, like, BK guys, you know what I mean? Like, um, you know, either they're here for a short time or left under some like circumstances that uh, were complicated, you know, the lateraling to a different job or, you know, taking a raise at a different place. Um, so I, I thought that I wanted to add like that level of credibility to the story. So it's not just guys who, you know, are going to say good stuff about Brian Kelly. Um, but it was, it was just like, I knew, in the summer that I wanted to do this story eventually. Um, and so I just sort of started on it and then spent a lot of time writing it uh, two weeks ago to figure out, okay, how, how can I make 10 interviews with all these assistant coaches actually work? Yeah. I'm curious. I, I know we've mentioned some quotes from that story and I also love the four wins casino story with Chip Long, but <laughs> do you have a favorite quote from that piece between Diaco Martin and Elko and Long? I'm sure there were a lot to be had there. Yeah. Yeah, there were. Um, I, I mean, the, the anecdote that I liked the most was Chuck Martin riding in a van with Kelly to Detroit to speak at a player's funeral when they were at Grand Valley. Um, Cause the way Martin told it, he was, I mean, we were talking about a bunch of other stuff and he's like, Pete, let me tell you the greatest Brian Kelly story ever. And I'm like, all right, like, what's this going to be? And that was the story. And at the end of it, he was just like, I, at the end, I called my wife and I'm like, holy shit, like you won't believe what just happened. Um, and at that point, Martin was just like, the ability of this guy to communicate in different crowds whenever is needed just blows your freaking mind. Um, so that was probably my favorite anecdote in there. Um, there was one where I think this, I, I tried to ask a bunch of them, like, what was the locker room? Like, I really am interested in Brian Kelly, like how he manages the staff after the game where he like brings him into this coach's locker room, sets the tone, then, then talks to the team. 
so I asked a bunch of different coaches, like what was the locker room scene that stuck with you most? Uh, Brian Polian talked about the Georgia game in 2017. Like that was really kind of a dodgy time. The Rams rebooting. You're not sure if it's taking because of the result, but Kelly is adamant that it is at the time. Um, and how Kelly sort of like kept everyone in good spirits there. Denbrock talked about the Florida State game in 2014. I think he used the term we all wanted to pistol whip the officials um, post game for the PI. I was really I was not included. I, yeah, I was going to really say that's a new that one. I couldn't work that in. Um, <laughs> you know, there was Brian Polian. Uh, he is one of his sons. He has two kids. One's one's adopted, um, and it you know has like some learning challenges. And like he talked about how. Um, Brian Kelly at like functions at Brian Kelly's lake house in Michigan. Like Brian Kelly will come over, you know, wrap his his arm around his son, Aiden, who's I think like maybe 11 or 12 and just talk to him for a while. And Polian just like, my son thinks Brian Kelly is like his best friend. And like, how freaking great is that? That the head coach at Notre Dame is going to take time out to come and make sure he's relating to this preteen like that he you know doesn't maybe doesn't know that well um or doesn't see a ton uh and how cool that was and just sort of like a a relational a relationship building um perspective so that i mean there was there was a bunch of stuff that didn't make it but um i did i did enjoy uh what was it i can't remember how, how mike called like brian kelly is really underrated for his football acumen he just doesn't rave about it on twitter like everybody else like um I appreciated that part of it. And one, one quote that Elko said that didn't make it in, he's like, because he worked for Dave Clawson at Wake Forest, works for Jimbo Fisher now. He was like, you know, if Dave Clawson does it one way and it's successful, Brian Kelly is 180 degrees the other direction and it works. And then he's like, and I don't know how this would work geometrically, but then Jimbo Fisher is another 180 degrees opposite from those guys and he still makes it work. Um, so it was, it was cool catching up with those guys. I mean, Diaco is as eccentric as you probably remember him. Um, he didn't really have any amazing anecdotes to share other than uh, I think just sort of like how pissed off he was after the Arizona state game in 2013. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of good stuff. It was difficult to figure out what's going to make it in and then how does it make it in? Uh, so the story just doesn't read as like one massive quote book. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Bob Diaco because Luke and I were saying before the Purdue game, like how great would it have been if Diaco were still on the staff and the quotes we'd get in the lead up to that and just basically everything surrounding that situation. But wanted to ask you one more question before we let you go and sort of go full circle on Brian Kelly um, because obviously Notre Dame now plays Cincinnati this weekend and um, a top 10 matchup. They're actually going to be underdogs at home, which is sort of crazy to think about um, just given the history of the two programs. And Kyle Hamilton's podcast today, uh, I think Cam Hart said that Mike Mickens has already told the cornerbacks, like, this one is personal. Obviously, you've got Marcus Freeman, who just came there from last season, and Brian Kelly was the coach there before. How much do you think this matters to the people on the Notre Dame staff with the Cincinnati connections? Uh, I think I wouldn't say it doesn't matter at all to Brian Kelly, um, but I think his relationship with Cincinnati is more, like, respectful. Um you know, that was a big part of my career. And like, I'm glad Cincinnati's coming here. Cause like, I want to show Cincinnati respect. Um, you know, that's why they're, they're playing central Michigan in a few years, similar reason. Like Brian Kelly wants to show that place respect because it was important to him. Totally different story for Freeman and Mickens though. Uh, and I don't, I don't know Mickens well enough to sort of speculate on that. Uh, I am writing a, a pretty big feature on Freeman 
for Thursday of this week. And I, I got some time with Luke Fickle, um, you know, in the preseason, just talking about their relationship. And um, I mean, it was interesting to sort of hear Fickle talk about when Freeman left, there was no real closure. Like he just took the job and left like, and they are so, so close. This is like the guy that coached yeah, that's him. Interesting. He coached him at Ohio state. Um, then was his first like coach that he coached under at Ohio state. Uh, when, when Freeman sort of went out on his own, he went to Kent state and then Purdue before linking up with football at Cincinnati. Freeman and Fickle would talk like sort of every Monday night for a half hour, you know, and like there is no greater influence than Marcus Freeman in his life professionally than Luke Fickle. Um, they are still close, but it's just sort of like not the same um, as it was before. So I, I do think there is a lot of extra juice for Freeman, um, you know, for Mickens probably, you know, but, you know, is there juice for Mike Denbrock coming back to Notre Dame? Maybe a little bit. Um, you know, Michael Young, um, you know, but he couldn't get on the field here, goes to Cincinnati. I think he's certainly having a, a better time of it there than he did here. So, I mean, there's just a – this game is kind of like an overwhelming narrative game. Um, but I, I think that the most interesting one is it's not Ryan Kelly. It's Marcus Freeman uh, and his relationship with Luke Fickle. Yeah, that makes sense. But uh, all right, be sure to check out Pete's work on The Athletic as well as his podcast, The Shamrock, with our other friend of the program, Matt Fortuna. And give him a follow on Twitter as well, at Pete Sampson underscore Pete. We appreciate your time as always. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right, sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, that'll do it for this edition of Sons of Saturday Irish. We'll be back on Friday with our Cincinnati preview. But in the meantime, give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Sons of Sat Irish. And please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk to you soon.